I want to invite you to pray with me this morning. And before we do that, I just want to remind you, um, I'm sure you all know, are aware, that tomorrow, uh, March 8th, the trial of Derek Chauvin will be uh, begin um, with the jury selection. And I want to invite you to join with me um, uh, that we as a church body, we pray for this whole uh, trial that's taking place because it greatly affects our city, right? It's a huge event in the life of our city. So I want to invite you, beginning tomorrow, maybe at noon, wherever you're at, uh, if you're by yourself or maybe a small group or whatever, you, you just join together noon, spend some time in, in prayer, prayer for our city. Um, this Wednesday night, we have a regular Wednesday night prayer uh, meeting on Zoom. We'd love to invite you to those Wednesday night prayer meetings through this next month, month and a half, two months of this trial. Uh, we're going to continue to uh, pray uh, for our city during that uh, trial. So uh, we invite you to that uh, as well. Uh, it's from 7 to 8 on Wednesday night. So just kind of mark that on your calendar, and we'd love to have you join us. Let's pray together here. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you and we know that you're sovereign and you're good. We thank you for the promise, God, that um, uh, the world, the nations, the rulers are all um, in your hand. They're about a, a, a drop in the bucket um, to you. What seems overwhelming to us is nothing to you. God, you are our creator. You are the alpha and the omega. You hold the universe together with your word. You are enthroned in the heavens. And this morning we have come not only to acknowledge that truth, but to worship you. We sing your praises. And Lord, today we do. We do pray for our city. We pray for Minneapolis, St. Paul. We pray, God, for your peace over our city. A peace that only you can provide. We pray for healing in our communities. We pray for unity among the, the churches. God, uh, of all ethnic backgrounds, might we glorify you and how we respond and react and how we present the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for wisdom for Judge Peter Cahill and for the judicial system, for the, for the jurors. And God, we pray for your justice to be accomplished. Lord, it's in your hands and um, you sovereignly are overseeing things. And so God, we just, we appeal to you on behalf of our city. And this morning we come, this very hour, and our souls and our hearts, they cry out to you because we need you. We need your presence. We need your touch. We need to hear your voice. You are the living God, and we hold on to your promises, and we trust in your faithfulness. So Lord, as we look into your word, would you speak, would you use your word in our lives to change us? to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. We all um, have failures, right? Um, we've experienced failures at different times in our, in our careers. But usually when we do that, um, if you, we usually keep quiet about it. Um, 
Not this Princeton professor, however, who shared in his curriculum vita, uh, CV for short, uh, a curriculum vita for an educator is kind of a, a resume. It's a resume of sorts for educators. And he developed a curriculum vita for, uh, of failures, and he put it on Twitter <laughs> for the world to see. And his vita included sections titled this, degree programs I did not get into, research funding I did not get, paper rejections from academic journals. <laughs> Why did he do it? He said this, most of us most of what I try fails, but these failures are often invisible while the successes are visible. I have noticed that this sometimes gives others the impression that most things work out for me. This Princeton assistant professor of psychology and public affairs, Johannes Hofschar, wrote that on his CV. Then he continued on. He said, um, projecting only successes and never recognizing fail failures has damaging effects. So he decided to do something about it. He said, people are more likely to attribute their own failures to themselves rather than the fact that the world is so um, statuistic. Applications are crapshoots, and selection committees and referees have bad days. <laughs> this CV of failures is an attempt for me to balance the record and provide some perspective, he said. But here's what Hafshar called his meta-failure. <laughs> he said, this darn CV of failures, he wrote, has received way more attention than my entire body of academic work. <laughs> Have you ever experienced something like that? Ever felt like a, a failure at times? Like a bumbling, stumbling, faltering, dunderhead? <laughs> This morning, we encounter a whole group of them, um, and we call them, usually, we call them Jesus' disciples. Um, and what makes matters worse about these disciples is that, is that they show themselves to be these self-centered, presumptuous uh, blockheads, not once, not just twice, but at least three times on the night uh, of Jesus' arrest. In fact, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22 this morning. Luke chapter 22. Um, we continue in our study through uh, Luke, um, but we are skipping ahead. Last week we were in Luke 9, but as we um, uh, get closer to Easter, we're moving um, to the passion of Jesus. And we're starting in that series that will lead us right up to, to Easter. So turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Now let me get you the scene here what's happening in Luke chapter 22. Um, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, okay? Um, he's there, um, and they have just finished with the, um, uh, together, participating in one of the most powerful and supreme moments of Jesus' earthly life. And that was the sharing of Jesus' last Passover together. Um, Last time, he shared that meal with his disciples. Once again, Jesus has reminded them that he is going to have to suffer, that he is going to have to die. But this time, through that Passover meal that they share together, he does something completely different. He takes that familiar Passover meal 
and he fills it with fresh meaning. He talks about a new covenant, a new era that will begin with uh, his death and his resurrection. This new covenant in Jesus' blood will supersede the, the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. And with the cup of wine still in his hand, a cup that represents his ultimate life-giving love that he has for those that he loves, he begins what we call his last discourse. Now this morning, what I want to do is I want to take this last discourse of Jesus and I want to divide it up into three units. It kind of breaks into that naturally, but we're going to look at each of these units. And each of these units, these three of them, I've given them different titles. There's the dispute over greatness, there is the, the declaration of failure, and there's a discussion of trouble. And we're going to take them and look at them one at a time. So let's begin with the dispute over greatness. Look with me um, at verse 24 and 25. Now understand, as Jesus is facing his death, okay, and Judas has already he's engaged in his betrayal, these other 11 disciples, they... They turn and they get into this argument about their status. Which one of them they, they're arguing about is the greatest? Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. <laughs> um, you have to understand something here. Um, I mean, this kind of dispute, this type of argument um, has apparently been a, a kind of a, a constant companion um, of these disciples. I mean, you go back to where we were last week, back in Luke chapter 9, and they were having this same argument over who was the greatest. And in response at that time over to their argument, what Jesus did was he, he pointed to a child. Uh, a child in the ancient world had very little status. And Jesus' conclusion is that everyone, even the, the lowest person on the ladder, matters to God. And so you would have thought by the time they were here, by the time they were in that upper room and enjoying that last Passover meal with Jesus, Jesus himself, these disciples, you would have thought they would have learned that lesson, right? But evidently not. <laughs> I mean, it's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? But I have to be honest with you. You know, when I read this story, I, I, there's, a, there's a side of me that says, man, I'm, I'm encouraged by these guys because this is me, <laughs> right? I mean, I've done all of this. Um, I get caught up in my status or my rank. Um, who am I greater than? Who am I head of? <laughs> of course, my guess is that none of you have ever done that, Right? I mean, I'm sure it's never crossed your mind this past week uh, to think more highly of yourself than you ought or to think that you are more important than you really are. <laughs> but listen, I got to tell you, when you do, it's great to know that you're, uh, you know, a lot like these disciples here. See, I'm encouraged, really, uh, by these proud, <laughs> self-centered disciples because I can relate. I can identify with him. Can't you? If we were reading John's gospel, we can guess that it was right in the middle of 
this dispute that what Jesus does is he gets up from the table and he takes a basin of water and he wraps a towel around his waist and he goes to each of his disciples and he begins washing their feet. John tells us about that. And after he finishes, he sits back down and he says, hey, boys, the king of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you, guys, not so with you. In other words, guys, listen, you're acting like those in our contemporary culture. He's right, isn't he? Still today, in our modern world, those in charge, they use their authority and power as a a way to be honored, right? And use their wealth in a way that is advantageous to themselves. And they give themselves these wonderful-sounding titles like benefactor. (laughs) But Jesus says, hey, you guys are not to be like that. Instead, you ought to serve. In fact, look with me at verse 26. Look what he says here. He says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Do you notice here that Jesus three times uses that phrase, the one who serves? Three times. Why? Because his perspective on greatness is the opposite of the world's. According to Jesus, see, greatness is defined not by position or by rank or by one's resume, but by one's attitude and service. While the world thinks it's the person who sits at the table at the restaurant that's the most important, Jesus says that in God's kingdom, it's the waiter, it's the one who serves who is the greatest. Um, With all of our good warm weather these days, uh, which we're all enjoying, we are fast approaching um, golf season around here, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, Have you ever watched one of those big golf tournaments, you know, on television? Uh, There are the golfers, right? And then there are the caddies. Um, Who's the greatest? The one who uh, is the golfer or the one who caddies? Um, Clearly, it's the one who plays, right? I mean, it's the one who plays. The the one who plays, the golfer, he can can dress up uh, in whatever way they like, you know? Um, but the caddies, have you noticed? They're all dressed alike, you know? Some golf tournaments, they're dressed like the masters. They're dressed in those green um, overalls. And others, they're dressed in those white overalls. Um, and the caddies, if you've, if you've ever noticed, they don't have their names on the back of their overalls. No, the, they have the name of the golfer that they carry for on the back. The caddy, what, he, what happens is the caddy loses um, their identity in servanthood, right? <laughs> he serves the player. The caddy rakes the sand trap. He doesn't chip out of it. He carries the bag. He, he doesn't hit a shot into the green. And Jesus says here, Jesus says, listen, I am among you like one of those caddies. I'm among you as the one who rakes, as the one 
who, uh, who carries the bag. I am a, among you as the one who is dressed in those white overalls. <laughs> Guys, Jesus says to this group of disciples, he says, the kingdom of God is different than the earthly kingdom. So instead of trying to be like an earthly king, focus on God's kingdom, where the rule will be that those who serve, that they're considered the greatest. So now catch this. Here they are at the worst time, you know. I mean, it, it's the night before Jesus goes to the cross. It's the night before Jesus dies. And his inner circle, <laughs> um, those who he had been pouring himself into for the past three years, those who he considers to be his closest and most intimate friends, they are arguing, arguing over who's the greatest. <laughs> They're jockeying for position. These stumbling, bumbling, faltering group of guys, they have done it again. They have missed a major lesson. How disheartening it must have been for Jesus to have to remind him of that lesson again. <laughs> that brings us to the second unit of this last discourse, and that's the declaration of failure. Look with me at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says, Simon, Simon. Now just hold on here for a second. Peter must have stopped dead in his tracks, don't you think? Hearing Jesus use his old name. I mean, remember, his old name, um, he had been Simon, which means uh, reed-like or, or shaky. But Jesus had changed his name from that to Peter, which means rocky. I mean, you could just imagine when, when Jesus had done that, uh, Peter must have gone, ah, I like that, rocky, yeah, I'm rocky. <laughs> but here, you know, you know, in the way a mother sometimes uses the middle name, of a child to get the child's attention. Joel Everett. I heard that a lot of times. Joel Everett. <laughs> Jesus says, Simon, Simon. Reminding Peter that underneath his new name, he's still shaky. He's still shaky. Jesus says, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And by the way, I got to tell you, it isn't only Peter that Satan asked to sift but it was rather the whole group of disciples. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, because in verse 31, those two words for you, they're plural. So Satan says, Satan's demand to have you, that is plural. He's demanded to have all of you to sift, Jesus is saying. Satan says, Jesus, listen, I want to have a go at your boys. And Jesus says, go ahead. But then he tells Peter, he says, Peter, I have prayed for you. At this point, what Jesus does is he moves from the plural to the singular. He says, I have prayed for you, Simon. And my prayer is this, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, he says, go, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Think about it. Think about the encouragement you receive when someone says to you, listen, I'm praying for you. 
I mean, a great, it, it means a great deal, doesn't it? And here is Jesus promising to pray for Peter. Peter, I'm going to pray for you. That's the ministry of Christ. Do you realize that? He is right now, right now, interceding for us. Philip Yancey, in his book titled Prayer, writes this, As Jesus once prayed for Peter, now he prays for us. In fact, the New Testament's only glimpse of what Jesus is doing right now depicts him at the right hand of God interceding for us. In three years of active ministry, Jesus changed the moral landscape of the planet. For nearly 2,000 years since, he has been using another tactic, prayer. (laughs) Jesus, think about this, the second person of the Godhead, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, is bringing your name, is bringing your needs before the Father. Sally's facing this today, Father, and I'm asking you to strengthen her. Tom is going through this. Amy is overwhelmed by this. These dear ones are consumed by these things, Father, and I'm pleading their case to you. (laughs) Listen, can I tell you, when you find yourself overwhelmed, remember this promise of Jesus. He's praying for you. And Peter, when you've turned again, Jesus says, strengthen your brothers. Peter's failure, see, will not come as a result of a failure of heart, but rather a failure of nerve. And it won't be permanent. We'll see that. There'll be restoration that will take place. And when there is, Jesus tells Peter to come alongside those who are weak and and, and those who are struggling, those who need comfort and encouragement and and help strengthen them. You know, that's one of our roles as followers of Jesus Christ, right? To comfort those with the comfort that we have experienced. (laughs) To encourage those with the same encouragement that we have known. To lift up those who need it in the same way that we uh, were lifted up when we were down. Now you might expect after these words from Jesus that Peter would say, ah, Jesus, oh man, bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks for this promise. <laughs> but I said, look what, Peter, look what Peter says. Verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, listen, I- I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will crow this day will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. <laughs> what did Peter do? He doesn't say thank you. What he, Peter does is he, he doubles down on his commitment, right? Listen, let's not be too hard on Peter here. I, I'm sure Peter meant it. I mean, I'm sure he, he meant it with all of his heart. Jesus, you, 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 are you talking to me? Peter says, Remember me? I'm Rocky, Jesus. I'm Rocky. Yes, I know. You called me shaky just a moment ago to get my attention. But listen, no, I'm not shaky anymore. I'm Rocky, Jesus. Don't worry about me. (laughs) Just hear Peter, right? I mean, I love Peter for this, don't you? I'm glad he did this. Because if he didn't, I got to be honest with you, I wouldn't have anyone to go to when I'm impulsive and impetuous. 
after I've made these great declarations of, of, of faith and then run out and failed almost immediately. <laughs> I mean, just think about last Sunday. Maybe you were with us or, or you were watching online last Sunday. We were back in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus talked about commitment and talked about the cost of following him. Think about maybe what God spoke into your heart last Sunday. And he said, Jesus, I'm making a commitment today. I'm leaving this worship service, and I'm going to be fully committed to following you. I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to obey you, and I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And then before you even sat down for lunch, everything you committed to had gone out the window, right? So what do you do when that happens? Did Jesus come to you and say, Ah, never mind your commitment. Hey, listen, you're okay just the way you are. Those thoughts you had, you know, <laughs> come on, they're, they're pretty normal. Um, the language you used, uh, that's okay. Listen, eh, don't, don't worry about it. No. Do you know what Jesus says? He says, that's exactly the way you are. <laughs> and that's exactly why I died for you. That's exactly why you need to trust in me. And that's exactly why you need to remember that I am interceding for you. Because you are chaos on two legs. <laughs> You're a sinner. You're a wanderer. You're impulsive and at times repulsive. But I love you. But I died for you. Joel, you are mine, Jesus says. And Jesus then reveals that instead of going to prison, Peter's going to deny him three times before the rooster even crows. Another act of God's grace, really, when you think about it. Because God's using that rooster to ring the bell of Peter's conscience of what he's just done. And when you recover, Peter, when you turn back, go strengthen your brothers and your sisters because, Peter, they need you. Done with Peter, then Jesus turns to the whole group again and he begins this third unit of this last discourse, what I've titled, A Discussion of Upcoming Troubles. Look with me at verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Earlier in Luke, Jesus sent out his disciples at least a couple of times, it records for us, to preach the gospel of the kingdom without any provisions. But now, Jesus, with his arrest and trial and death just around the corner, Jesus knows that their ministry experience is going to change dramatically. Opposition is going to greatly increase. Things are about to, to heat up 
The days ahead are going to be perilous. They're going to be filled with trouble. Jesus, you know, kind of like that flight attendant says, okay, uh, everyone, you want to buckle up for this one. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, it's important for us to understand that Jesus is not speaking literally here about um, going out and buying a sword to his disciples. I mean, he's not suggesting to the disciples they go arm themselves. Why do I say that? Well, you read later here in the same chapter, um, the next morning as Jesus is about to be arrested in that garden of Gethsemane, one of the disciples draws a sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And what was Jesus' response to that action? <laughs> it wasn't, hey, good job, thanks for defending me. No, his response was simply, no more of this. And then he healed that servant's ear. See, Jesus' point here with all of this description is that the days that lie ahead for you as disciples of mine are going to be trouble-filled days. So prepare yourself. Get ready for it. But of course, these bumbling, stumbling, faltering disciples, they're slow to understand. So they respond by saying in verse 38, they say, Lord, look, hey, hey, look, we got two swords here. <laughs> I mean, they didn't get it. They didn't get what Jesus was saying. Finally, I mean, Jesus had had it and replies, it is enough. One commentator explained Jesus' last comment this way. He said, so complex was the disciples' misunderstanding of his saying that they would need to buy a sword that he refused to explain it anymore. We might render Jesus' words thus, I give up. <laughs> I give up on you guys. How disheartening all of this must have been for Jesus, right? All this eagerness at the beginning of the evening, you know, to enjoy that Passover meal with his disciples. But then comes Judas's betrayal and then the disciples' dissension then Peter's denial and now their utter blockhead misunderstanding. But see, Jesus loved these guys. And he continued to offer his grace to these guys. I want you to notice this. Notice that right in the heart of this discussion, of this upcoming trouble, Jesus quotes Isaiah 53, verse 12. You see this? And he was numbered with the transgressors. And then Jesus says, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Do you realize this is the only time that Jesus expressly quotes from Isaiah 53? You say, well, why is that significant? Because Isaiah 53 is the messianic servant song that describes the death and atonement of the Lamb of God. And Jesus anticipates, as he anticipates his going to the cross, he's explaining to his disciples his death, specifically here in terms of the substitutionary atonement talked about in Isaiah 53. Jesus is telling his disciples that he is that suffering servant, the servant whose wounds will heal us, who bore the sin of many. And although him... Uh, Jesus himself was no transgressor. He says, I have been numbered among the transgressors. In other words, I am identifying as a transgressor. I'm going to the cross as a transgressor. So that when he bore our sin, he might bring us to God. 
He poured out his life for us. He stands in the place that I deserve so that I might stand in the place that I don't deserve. That's grace. That's grace. It's the message of the gospel. God's grace is all over these three individual stories of Jesus' last discourse. By the way, did you notice what Jesus said back in verse 28? I want to point this out real quickly. Verse 28, look what he says here. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. <laughs> um, isn't that amazing? What an incredible statement when you think about it. I mean, it sounds to me like a commendation. It, it, it sounds to me like Jesus has given these, these bumbling, stumbling, faltering guys an attaboy. You know, a pat on the back. I mean, think about it. If you were in Jesus' shoes at this time, what would you have done? After all of this stuff that was going on, when you say, you know what? I don't need you guys. You guys betray me. You, you argue over who's the greatness all the time. You know, who's the greater one? You, you, you deny me. Uh, you just don't listen to me. I, guys, I'm sick of all of you. You're useless. Get out of here. <laughs> Wouldn't that be our temptation? That'd be understandable, right, if that was Jesus' response. I'm going to have to get a whole new team, you know? This group is no good, faltering, stumbling, bumbling, bunch of rascals. <laughs> but instead, Jesus says, guys, come here. You're the ones who stood with, uh, you're the ones who stood with me during my trials. Ah, Lord, you can't be talking to us. Oh, Lord, we're, we're the ones who are arguing. No, no, no. You were the ones who stood with me. Jesus, no, we're the ones who failed you. No, no, no. You're the ones who stood with me in my trials. But Lord, we're the ones who didn't understand. We're the ones who are weak and, and, and self-centered and self-reliant. No, no. You're the ones who stood with me in my trials. Do you hear God's grace in Jesus' voice? Do you see what grace does? God's grace calls us forward out of our stumbling, bumbling, faltering failures and troubles. God's grace rescues us. God's grace saves us and changes us. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller tells about the acclaimed foreign film, Three Seasons. He writes this, Three Seasons is a series of vignettes about the life in post-war Vietnam. One of the stories is about Hai, a cycle driver, a, a bicycle rickshaw um, driver, and Lane, or Lan, a beautiful prostitute. Both have deep, unfilled desires. Hai is in love with Lan. Lan lives in grinding poverty and longs to live in the beautiful world where she works, but in which she never spends the night. She hopes that the money she makes by prostitution will be her means of escape, but instead the work brutalizes her and enslaves her. Then High enters a cyclo race and wins the top prize. With the money he brings land to the hotel, he pays for the night, he pays her fee, and then to everyone's shock, he tells her he just wants to watch her fall asleep. Instead of using his power and wealth to have sex with her, he spends it to purchase a place for her for one night 
in a normal world to fulfill her desire to belong. Land finds such grace deeply troubling at first, thinking that Han has done this to control her. When it becomes apparent that he is using his power to serve rather than use her, it begins to transform her, making it impossible for her to return to a life of prostitution. And Keller notes this. He says, in a similar way, Christians are transformed as we accept how Christ served and died for us while we were unworthy of his love. Keller asks, why wouldn't you want to offer yourself to someone like this? Selfless love destroys mistrust in our hearts towards God. That's the power of God's grace. (laughs) Even for bumbling, stumbling, faltering disciples like us.